So you made your wife buy a third degree shirt? No, I didn't make her. She bought that on her own. She didn't buy a Huntsman shirt. No, but I did. I love you. Well, hello there, FC Dallas Curious fan, and welcome to another edition of Third Degree, the podcast. Today on the pod, FCD gets points using scrubs. We take a peek at the Hunt checkbook, and we consider what to do with ourselves during some MLS downtime. Hi, my name is Peter, and today it's just a twosome. Joining me is our fearless leader, founder and co-editor of thirddegree.net and from the Dallas Morning News, Buzz Carrick. Come in, Buzz. Hello, Peter. Calling in from Westcott Field down on SMU's campus after the uh, U.S. Open Cup win. I'm just going to stay here until the game next week. Well, FC Dallas did have a nice uh, Open Cup win against Oklahoma last night. Was the, I, I didn't get to it. I Just going to be honest, I didn't care. I didn't go. I watched it on ESPN Plus for a little bit. Was it a good crowd? Yes, actually, it was a good crowd. It's one of the better um, Open Cup crowds, at least early round Open Cup crowds that we've ever seen, uh, really? to be fair. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would have – they announced, I think, 1,200, and I, I have no complaints about that number at all. That was a legitimate – uh, 75, 80% full stands at SMU. It was, it was nice. It is a weird location for that level of game because the stands are only on one side. And I wonder, is that does that make it feel romantic and cool or super cheap? Well, if you... If you like the Open Cup, it probably feels romantic and cool. If you think the Open Cup is stupid, it probably is, seems really cheap. But um, their hands are tied in a certain way because they uh, they use this gap in their MLS schedule to resurface Toyota Stadium. So they couldn't play there even if they wanted to. So they had to find some other venue. And Westcott Field is a place they've used before. And it's appropriate for the kind of crowds they get for U.S. Open Cup games. Um, you know, and the, the surface wasn't too great. That was my biggest complaint was, I don't know what they've been doing on that field lately, but it didn't look too hot, but, um, you know, at least it's not on turf. It's not on a football field. It's on a real soccer field. You know, it's not bad. I'm going to guess the SMU students, uh, before the end of the year had some sort of rave on it, uh, you know, and just did Molly yeah. and glow sticks and <laughs> well, that's what it looked like. It looked yeah. like somebody had a concert on it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, that here in a little bit. Let's uh, wind back the Wayback Machine to Saturday, June the 8th. Uh, this was the game we all were sitting around wondering what would happen uh, if FC Dallas had to play a game when uh, half their lineup were out on international duty and or injured and or just not very good. And <laughs> we got a very interesting result uh san jose two, fc dallas two, and i think uh buzz everybody went away from that feeling pretty good about themselves yeah I, you know san jose uh the last few years has been a team uh that you would call a bogey team in the sense that um dallas does really poorly against that team for whatever reason including this season that san jose had four wins two of their four wins came against dallas um and dallas was in first place for a great part of that year so it's an oddity for sure so going to San Jose is always troublesome for them, and uh, particularly when you're missing the three, uh, Pamacol, Cervania, and, and Surreal were still at the U20 World Cup, and Acosta and Grezzo had left, and Mosquera was injured. So that's six uh, you know, exciting sort of players, that all, some of which are midfielders all the time. One of them is a foot the five, five and fourth, but either way, you're missing all those players. And they ended up having to go with um, uh, Hayes, who's, who is in the mix normally anyway, and Thomas Roberts, who had uh, just turned uh, – 
18 uh, is still in high school. He's literally a high school senior playing in your number 10 spot, which is incredible. Uh, and they converted Ryan Hollingshead of all people to holding mid, which is just crazy. That concept, uh, that was the sixth different position he started in this year alone. So, um, missing that kind of, uh, firepower and, and Ziegler just coming back from injury and, and all the things combined together The you know, it, it, it was exciting to go out there and see a result, you know, another insane own goal. Own goal is now number two in scoring behind Jesus Ferreira uh, on the team. <laughs> <laughs> we should make some own goal t-shirts. Somebody joked. Uh, it's just one of the craziest own goal you'll ever see. And then, uh, you know, got a goal late and, uh, you know, earned that win, a tie, excuse me, which is a win in my mind when you, when you have that kind of roster, you know, yeah. it, it was a positive game. Yeah. I, you know, I think for comedic value, the fact that own goal is now uh, second uh, yeah. leading goal uh, a <laughs> method of getting a goal in the team is a very high comedic value but the reality is, is it's a reflection of just how yes. much this team has struggled struggled in an attack but i before we get into that part of it i do want to go back and reflect on the absolute absurdity of the actual own goal itself because vega the san jose keeper who by the way by all accounts has a bit of a history of some uh not so awesome moments in his career i i, I have re-watched that uh, no less than 20 times and i still can't figure out how yeah. he managed to do that because i've you know many people said he's not looking at the ball like he's not paying attention he actually is looking down at the ball when it hits his feet yeah, I, I thought that maybe he was he was looking to the other side as well to, before the ball gets to him. Like, you know, do I have a guy on my other side that I can pass to? And then looks back late, you know. But he has to redirect that thing. It's not like it. It's not like it was going to go in the goal if he doesn't do anything. It's like he actually had to change it. If it left it alone, it would have dribbled off out the other side. I give him credit for owning it later on Twitter. You know, he, he manned up and said, you know, it's my bad, but I'm going to get better. And you know, and and you can argue too that he was at fault on the second goal when uh, Francis Atuahene <laughs> made his MLS debut and scored 33 <laughs> seconds later, which is, which is not the record. That's not the fastest goal in a MLS debut ever. Somebody did it in like 20 seconds. Worth. Really? So, yeah, I, it, it's on MLS's website. I can't remember who it is, but that's the 33 seconds was the second fastest goal debut ever. But, you know, good for him. Good kid. You know, he he's one of the most positive kids I've ever met. With all these injuries, he's still been smiling and laughing and out there working his tail off. So I was glad to see him get some time. And then, of course, he immediately got loaned to – he and Emma Tomasi immediately got loaned to Austin Bold. So that's his reward. It's the ticket out of town. Yeah. Uh, Vega, in particular, had a really bad day. His positioning on the second goal was, at the very least, Suspect, yeah. questionable. I don't know yeah. how you decide to jump to your near post when a guy is cutting back into the middle, but – um, he's a professional soccer player and I yeah. am not, um, the own goal will go down. I, there's probably not a, a sports cast in the world that, uh, at least oh. does some sort of soccer coverage that didn't, didn't show that. In fact, I even, I think I saw the other night that I think the channel four local newscast showed it and discussed it outside of a sports out, outside the sports segment, wow. like to close hey. the, to close the, um, um, the broadcast that night, they uh, ended it by showing that highlight and how bad it was. And they were all discussing it and how bad they yeah. felt for him and everything. Hey, so. They were talking about soccer. That's good. 
Yeah, I suppose so. So, uh, yes, so uh, Dallas gets a, a few performances. I guess really what I'm interested in knowing in two partic- players in particular is what yeah. was your review of Thomas Roberts' performance? Thomas Roberts. And uh, Ryan Hollingshead as the holding mid. Uh, Thomas at uh, number 10 is the same uh, sort of view he had in the previous game, which was not bad. Um, the thing that he's working on is the thing he's been working on all season, which is – uh, what I would I will call, for lack of a better word, wisdom of the game, which is when to try things and when to not try things. And and Lucci had some comments about uh, we want him to take risks, uh, we want him to try things because that's the kind of player he is, um, and that's what he's learning to do is when to try those things and and to do some of those things. And so the the, the next step for him will be to make some danger and create some danger in the offensive third. That wasn't there a lot uh, in this game, but he did have. Uh, looking at his chart, he does have three or four passes into the offensive third, which is more than you were getting out of some other guys that have played that position, like um, Mr. Pablo Rangis, for example. So uh, I don't have any big complaints about Thomas's play. Obviously, he's not you know a league-breaking number 10 yet, but um, I felt like he'd done good enough actually to continue on into the Open Cup game, and we'll talk about why he didn't or why I think he didn't later. But, um, you know... For an 18-year-old kid, it wasn't bad. You know, it's not like they got beat because of what he was doing. You know, he play, he presses high pretty well. You know, it's good, good, good showing. You know, he got a future with that kid. And then, uh, what about uh, Mister oh, yeah, Utility Ryan. Utility yeah. Belt? Yeah, um, I I thought that he was okay. Um, he's pretty good about remaining calm and connecting and trying to hold it together. Uh, he did have some defensive activities. He did a decent job there. Uh, but I think on both goals, you could make a case that he failed to track or at least held, failed to fill in getting back and allowed, you know, Wando came out of midfield on his goal and the, the Erickson goal is the ball pops back out and he's not there either. So, um, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to grill the guy because I don't know, honestly, what you expect out of him there. You know, defense is not his specialty and you're asking him to play defense. So in terms of like holding it together. You know, keeping the flow going and not getting shredded up the middle on the dribble and things like that. He was okay. You know, not terrible. Not obviously going to be something you're going to do very often, though, unless you absolutely have to. And somebody else to consider, uh, and I'm just wondering your performances. What did you think about uh, Jesus's game? Yeah, you know, Jesus as a nine is an interesting question. Um, he actually didn't have a shot against San Jose, which is not necessarily something you want to have happen, but um, he also did spend some time once the subs happened, you know, things got shifted up a little bit. He did spend some time playing further back. Uh, you know, Jesus is a really good player. He's a good passer. He certainly can handle the MLS level. He, he presses pretty well. Um, you know, the, the shortcomings, if you will, in his game, because he is a pretty clinical finisher, the shortcomings that are happening in terms of getting the ball on the goal and getting in the goal, I think are related to a bigger issue with this club in general is that they don't do a good enough job getting the ball into the striker's feet in the box. You know, sometimes it's been a question of the striker not being in good position. There are some guys that have not done that. Baji's about hit or miss on that. Uh, Cobra's hit or miss on that. Ferreira is probably the best of the three on that. But, you know, if you, if you don't get touches and opportunities in the box and get chances to shoot, that's not necessarily on the, forward. So I think he's doing pretty good within the context of Dallas's inability to possess the ball in the final third. I mean, we, how many times now have we talked about this stat they keep pumping out about the passes back and forth among the back line, you know, mm-hmm. tons of possession all over the place, but no 
integrated passing into the final third. No, no pass, no direct passes to the feet of the striker in dangerous positions. You know, it's something they've been working on for the last multiple weeks in training is driving these balls from the wing or from the angle, not quite the wing, you know, sort of the cut in balls, driving the balls low into where a striker can get a finish on them, not just looping it across like you often see with a header. So uh, I think it's an issue that they're aware of. And I think I'm not going to put that on Jesus in terms of his game. I think overall his game is pretty good. So now we're 16 games into the regular season. We're essentially one third of the way through. There's an internet, you know, the break is here. The team doesn't play again for a couple of weeks, at least in league play. I, I th- are you and I on the same page that we're about exactly where we expected this team to be at this point of the season? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Fifth, you know, play, I mean, we, we, fifth place, 22 yeah. points. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I think you maybe expected them to be even a little worse. I expected them to be right about fifth or sixth, and then hopefully progress as the season went on. You know, a lot of it, as we talked about at the beginning of the year, was going to be some of it's going to be because of a young coach, some of it's going to be because of a young team, some of it's going to be because they jettisoned a lot of veterans, and even the guys that were here are now that were here already weren't necessarily starters or becoming starters and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, when you when you when you're transitioning to a new system under a new coach, it's not spectacularly different in terms of like its shape, but uh, Lucci wants to play Lucci ball. He wants, as we've already branded it, he wants to play this possession, this passing, this build up from the back, this modern game. He wants to imitate your Liverpools and your Manchester cities and things like that. So that's a different system. And um, particularly right now, as we just talked about with the last game, again, they're doing lots of possession. They're doing lots of maintaining and they're high pressing pretty well. Those two parts are pretty good. The part that's not there yet is the offensive third the final third and they that's the next phase Lucci keeps talking about so they're working on it you know the success of this season is going to come down to the progression of this next phase of the game if they can get better at this and start converting shots and start converting goals then they'll start climbing the standings if they don't they're going to be able to win some games and they're going to sort of maintain their position now which is going to be the bottom couple of teams in the playoffs so, you know, we're right where we thought they would be. We'll have to see how it goes from here. Well, let's talk about uh, that a little bit as related to I thought what, what I thought were a couple of surprise substitutions in San Jose. Uh, Atenawehe, who we commented about a second ago, who had an amazing day. It was his MLS debut. It was his birthday, and he scored in 33 seconds. Un- frankly, yeah. a really nice move and finish on his part. I ended up with two shots in the game. And then Tomasi, who also got in the game, uh, now, uh, setting aside their performance in the game against San Jose, we made a joke about it, but I do think it's interesting that for a team that seems to be struggling in those positions or not having a ton of depth, the fact mm-hmm. that they turned around and loaned those guys out to Austin Bold literally a couple of days later, yeah. uh, it, what do you think that's a larger indication of? Trust in the other people they already have on the roster, or is it an mm. indicator that something's on the way? Well, I think it's both of those things, and it's something else uh, in particular. Um, those two young guys are, um, you know, they're they're twenty two, twenty three. I think I think uh, it was his birthday. You think he turned twenty three that day, if I remember correctly? And Emma's one year younger, so they're twenty two and twenty three, and they're in their second season, having been drafted out of college as Generation Adidas players. Um, and Generation Adidas contracts don't last forever, so right now they're cap free. So. You need to see some development out of them, those two guys. And we know that to develop, you need to play. 
you could play them with North Texas, except that you've got Academy kids down there. You're trying to develop because that league, to be fair, has not turned out to be as good as we had hoped. You know, (laughs) the FC Dallas is playing a U19 team and they're dominating that league in first place. They're playing kids. So it's like, I don't know that playing time for, uh, for a Tuahene and Tuamasi at with North Texas helps at all. So, um, you're talking about the two guys that literally are the, are the 26th and 27th guys on this roster and are never getting playing time. So once the U twenties came back to the FC Dallas has been working on this deal for a couple of weeks because they wanted to get these guys somewhere where they can play. Um, they talked to a couple other teams that I know of. And the, the key was, you know, who needs some bodies and is actually going to use them because they need to see some action in order to try and develop these guys because the clock is ticking. You know, we talked about Academy kids coming and as you mentioned, the window's coming. And it seems to me that once Santiano Mascara gets healthy, he's going to be back in the mix. Baji's doing okay, but neither one of those guys or Pablo, Pablo's going to come back in a week too. So all of a sudden you're going to get three, uh, two guys back to play at a wing, none of whom have owned the position. So I think that's the position they're actually looking to do something. So you're going to get two guys, maybe a third guy in there. They're going to compete at those same positions. So there was never going to be any playing time here in Dallas. And I still think that's the position that Dallas is going to target uh, in the summer window because um, you could go for a nine still because as good as Jesus has, we think Jesus has been pretty good. He's not dominating like a nine should. So like if you think this is a contender year, that might be the thing. Either way, if you get a nine and move Jesus to a wing or to a 10, you know, you can you can tell with the things they're looking at by the shifts they're making in some of these games when they're missing people and what they're trying. So, um, it's a it's a triple combination of why Atuhene and Tumasi were never are hardly ever going to get any playing time going forward as as this team gets healthy and gets guys back. So what I'm hearing from you, Buzz, is is we still don't know what to expect in terms no. of the summer window. No, we don't. Um, you know, Dan Hunt has said a couple of players. Lucci has sort of confirmed that to an extent, but he clarified that he was thinking in terms of one player as a foreign signing and one player probably from the uh, North Texas. So a promotion from within, you know, and we, we talked last time a bunch about how the player from within will be a player that can help. They feel can help them. So, you know, if, if you're trying to figure out who that is, because I don't think it's for sure. Pepe, um, you know, we can rehash that again if you want, but, um, just look at the FC Dallas formation, right? If you get Acosta and Grezzo back and you get Paxton back, your three midfield spots are pretty good. You got Jagora Hayes on there. Brandon Cervani looked pretty good in the U20 World Cup. Thomas, we've liked him in moments. Jesus has played as a 10-2, looks pretty good. So your midfield's pretty confident. The problem is up front, still as it always has been. So you have to look up the front line for me. Look at the front line and – Jesus has been okay as a nine, but maybe not great. So are they going after a nine? Could that be Pepe? I don't know if that answers questions or fixes this season. That's a long-term picture. So maybe they're going for a nine, but it's more likely, I think, maybe they go for a wing. Um, since you have Coleman coming back and you do have uh, the Garden Snake hanging around, you know, Mosquera, Baji, and or uh, Arangis, none of them have owned that left wing spot. You know, the other wing, other than Barrios, I mean, how, how many years since Castillo left, we've been talking about that wing position. So it's like, uh, you know, I, for me, that's where maybe where they go. Um, and then the thing that will affect all this stuff, of course, is are they going to sell somebody? You know, we talked about if they lose Grezzo, are they ready to go with Surreal as a six, 100 percent? 
Um, I don't know why not. Play the kids, right? So that that seems like they could make do with between him and Hayes, maybe. Um, you know, if they sell, goodness, if they sell Paxton, then what are you doing? Maybe that's why they're trying Jesus as a 10. I, I think it's, we can talk about Paxton as a whole separate issue if you want, but I think it's probably not this summer that he leaves. So for me, the needs are either a nine or a wing, and I think it's more likely that it's a wing than a nine for me. Especially considering how much money they have tied up uh, yeah. at that position, which we can talk about here. Uh, we'll get to up. in a minute, yeah. Right, we'll get to in just a minute. Okay, so um, uh, they get the 2-2 result on the road in a game that I don't think anybody had any expectations about. So uh, credit to the team and Lucci uh, for scrounging yeah. up the one point on the road, which is always a good result, um, especially considering the circumstance. And then last night, they had a U.S. Open Cup game against uh, the USC. I guess they're in the USL Championship. Is championship, that? Yeah, yeah, championship, yeah. which is Oklahoma City, who themselves were having a, a, a not only only a a lot of games in a very short period of time, but also who were missing several players yeah. uh, due to international call ups. And Dallas uh, handled them very easily with a 16 year old playing up top in Ricardo yeah. Pepe. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, they were, they were missing four players as well for the Gold Cup. You know, they're a, d- a decent USL team. They're in sixth place in the West. You know, they're in the mix. They're not great, but they're pretty good. Um, and that's the amazing thing about um, Pepe, watching Pepe play, is to remind yourself that he's 16. So I tried to indicate on Twitter for people, you know, if you're watching him, what to look for, which is watch how good his positioning is. He runs a high line and is pushes it high and stays high, plays like a nine should, you know, making the center backs sit back and occupy him in a bracket, which opens space underneath, which Jesus Ferreira took advantage of all night. So with Pepe being up there, you know, he, remind yourself that he's 16 and watch his positional awareness, watch the physicality of him. He's already 6'1". You know, over the next couple of years, he's going to put on some muscle mass and that's going to help his game a lot because he can already battle guys. And he's really good about checking back and playing little combos. He's really good about nipping in and taking a guy off a defender, taking a ball off a defender. He did that twice that I noticed last night. Um you know, one thing about him is the same thing we've talked about any strikers in that game in particular. He would put himself in position if he got the, the lateral low driven pass where he would score and the ball didn't come in. Once or twice it did, you know, and he didn't get a ball in the net. But there were several times when he was ready for the pass and it didn't come. So it's related to the same thing we have with any striker around here is the balls are not getting into his feet enough. So it's that's the same problem he had with the U-17 team the USU 17 team when he wasn't getting balls played into him either compare that to when he's with the Academy or North Texas, he's with guys like Arturo and David Rodriguez He's with guys like Damos. He's with Dante Sealy guys that have played with him and know how to play with him and they get him the ball in good positions and he buries it. So it's exciting to watch and, and to think about he's 16. What's he going to be at 26? That's what's exciting. So, you know, it, it's on him and it's on the team to develop him, but it was fun to watch him, not be short of, of play and not be at all missing of play against a bunch of grown men, some of whom have been playing for 15, 20 years as pros. Uh, I Just to get back to a, a point that you're making here, because in the, the amount of the game that I did watch, which was mostly in the first half, that was the most glaring and obvious uh, takeaway for me in watching was here's a guy that seems to be playing this position very well, ends up with only a single shot, uh, over the course of the entire game. And, yeah. and you do, it, it is absolutely a far larger indicator about problems behind the front line in terms of yes. getting the ball to forwards that it does beg the question, what if we all just find out that maybe 
uh, Andresnik or uh, Coleman or Jesus or any of these players may actually be highly serviceable number nines. They're just not getting the service needed to really prove themselves out. Baji would be the other one as well. Yeah. Well, that's something we've been talking about and some of, I've been talking about it anyway, and we've talked about it in this podcast and I've put it in a bunch of my breakdowns lately is we often, I'll often mention in passing of these strikers is that uh, Jesus only had 14 touches, you know what I mean? And it's like, he's got 14 and you're, and Paxton has 60 and this is not to knock on Paxton. It's a knock on basically the whole team is that pretty much every single game, whatever striker FC Dallas rolls out there, ends up with 20 in the neighborhood of 20 touches, sometimes more, sometimes less. It's just the bottom line is this club and it doesn't matter who you run out there. They don't get the ball into the feet of the striker enough to score more goals. Now, if you, if you think that the way you play is fine and that you want to, you, the way it's going is fine. I suppose you could go that route that you like shots from outside. You like Barros over the top. You like Baggio for the top. Those are good things. But if you want production from your nine, you know, I mean, Zlatan doesn't score goals because he magics them. He gets the ball, you know. So right. it's a uh, you got to play the ball to the guy if you want him to score. So that's something that the team needs to work on as a concept. And it, and it, and it could be in the end, I could be, have to eat massive crow if they figure out a way to how to get the ball into the feet of Andresic and he can bang in fifteen with that or Coleman too. I mean, you know, the, the bottom line is if they don't get the ball, they're not going to have any chance to score at all. And I'm sure at the great irritation of one Thomas Roberts, Thomas Roberts, uh, the performance of Jesus Frey at the ten. Uh, how much of that is actually us not realizing he's a, you know he's highly serviceable at that position versus um, the way Oklahoma chose to, or maybe better described as not uh, play him last night. Yeah, Jesus um, has played some ten with the academy, so it is a p- position he's familiar with. I would contend that in that game in particular, because Pepe had um, occupied the center backs pretty well, that there was a lot of space underneath um, the striker, underneath Pepe, uh, to take advantage of. And and, and Freya wasn't the only one that took advantage of it, but he was the key one who did. Uh, in particular, he played that position more of a um, slashing kind of uh, way, which which I would call like as an off-striker kind of style more than like a peer number 10. Like he played more like his dad when his dad was league MVP in 2010. than he did like uh, Mario Diaz who sits back and plays little diagonal balls. Jesus attacks through those spaces instead. So um, it was pretty good. I, I don't have his exact passing numbers, but if you look at his charts, uh, you know, there's multiple balls into the final third and multiple passes and, and plenty of shots to be had too. So, uh, and he took some corners, and had some pretty good corners too, including the one for Baji that was an obvious set play they practiced on, and it was a great shot by Baji. So, um, you know, that was the future. There's a lot of future in Thomas Roberts, but that future is a, in process. Like if you needed to win a big game right now, Jesus Freya might be the better option in that role. And I couldn't help but think that they must be thinking about Jesus is a player I like, and I say they, I mean Lucci. Jesus Ferreira is a player I like and I trust to be able to play at an almost level right now. If I'm getting another nine or if Coleman comes back and gets healthy or if I get a wing and I, now maybe Baji could go back to nine uh, while these guys are missing, could Paxson drop as an eight? And can I use Ferreira as a 10 or going forward in a year or two? If Pepe's my nine, what am I doing with Jesus? Can he be a 10 for me? You know, so I think they're trying to figure out still what to do with Jesus Ferreira 
you know, uh, with their eyes towards the future, even if it's short-term future or long-term future, why not experiment with him in an open cup game? And I thought it was kind of interesting, to be honest. And speaking of teenagers, Brian Reynolds got a start out in uh, Reggie's spot out at right back. Um, what do we think about him in the open cup game? In the open cup game, I thought he was terrific. Now, he didn't get challenged a lot. Um, they kept Gordon kind of away from him to a certain extent because um, Hollingshead was on the other side. And so they were trying to isolate Gordon's pace against Hollingshead most of the time. So um, Reynolds got uh, Sasa Sarevich, who's the player that was a draft pick here that I wanted to, Dallas to sign that they ended up not keeping. Um, but I thought Reynolds did pretty good. He has a really great verticality to his game. He showed the ability to actually turn and dribble through two or three defenders at once. Um, that's a lot to like and get excited about there. And Reggie's going to be gone now for what a month. How long is the gold cup a month? So um, I thought between the sub appearances he's made lately and, and the open cup game, I think Reynolds has made a very good case that he should be starting while Cannon is gone. Um, Oscar told me at the end of last year, he thought Reynolds was ready to start if they needed him to. So the other options are to put Hollingshead or Nelson over there, which works, but why not use, I mean, play the kids, right? This kid's shown that he's good enough. I think to get a run at right back. If it goes to, goes to pieces and falls apart, then you can go back to Nelson or Hollis, but I don't think it will. I think he looks fine over there. And with Hedges next to him to provide some comfort, you know, perfect opportunity to give Reynolds five or six games and see what you got with him. And the other kind of uh, odd thing that I noted in the last two games, both uh, Open Cup and a league game but with San Jose, is uh, the trio of Matt Hedges, Ryan, uh, Matt Hedges, Brisson, and Ziegler. Now, Ziegler didn't play. Did he play in the Open Cup game? He came on as a sub, yeah. Okay, but then they used all three of them in the uh, San Jose game in a tr- in kind of a trio in the back line, and I yeah. wonder if is that something that Lucci is playing with in terms of as, as a concept of figuring out who can play maybe out on the left instead. Yeah, I mean he's used Ziegler at left back. Um, when you do that, you get. Uh, for lack of a better word, you get the kind of the national team look because Ziegler is, does not have the verticality, you know, that, that Cannon does or that Reynolds does or, or, or anybody else. Frankly, he kind of plays more of a stay at home kind of game. And so you get three guys staying at home. We've also seen it uses three, five, two, excuse me, three, five, two, where they've used three center backs. The problem with using all three of those guys is that there is no next option after those three guys. If you use them at one time, like, because mm-hmm. Colin Montgomery's not ready. Like for the Open Cup game, they sent him to with North Texas so he could play ninety minutes. You know, so it's not. Uh, it, it, there's there is no and, and Moises Hernandez is with San Antonio and then he's hurt anyway. So uh, there is no fourth option at center back, which is actually a concern in the big picture. Like, because if you were to lose one of your center backs, then you'd be down to no sub center backs really because of the fact that Montgomery's not ready uh, for MLS action. Um, so that's actually a big concern, and and despite the fact that they did, they have used them all three at once. I don't think it's a plan to do that beyond when they need to, when it's necessary. And Brandon Cervania's back from the U twenty uh, really had a super clean game uh, against Oklahoma City as well. Yeah, he did. I thought he was terrific. I mean, he looks really good. Uh, he definitely because he played for Tulsa, because of familiarity with Oklahoma City, you know, he knew knew he was getting into. Uh, and he was—he did a really nice job. His positioning was fantastic. They played a more of the of the two deep kind of players, which is what he's used to. He's used to that deep 
not it's not quite a full six roll in his case because Hayes is in there too. So the two of them together, it's the double pivot versus the single. So he has from they each have freedom to go forward, and that sort of six eight hybrid roll is Cervania's best skill and his most natural skill. So um, he was really at home, and he did a nice job controlling the middle of the field. You know, dictating the pace of the game, distributing both wide and getting forward. Positionally, he's in the right position. He doesn't tackle hard. He doesn't hit people, but he does a nice job of picking the ball up and recovering and taking it off guys, you know, when he can. So I actually thought that was maybe the best game I've seen him play for FC Dallas, which is not a lot of exposure, but, you know, I thought that was a really good performance for him. You know, he needs the confidence of the World Cup, I'm sure, helped him, and he needs to do well because. Before the World Cup, he was not in Lucci's thinking at all, and hopefully now he is in Lucci's thinking. Yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition because Cerillo uh, obviously had won the job and had been playing well for the senior team uh, because Cervania had been injured in preseason. Uh, so he kind of uh, won his way onto the team and held on to the spot. And then we get to the World Cup, and there were so many questions about why wasn't Cerillo getting on the field, and Cervania, who had been behind him at club level, was getting all this time. Now, I did read today, Matt Doyle from MLS yeah. Soccer wrote an interesting article kind of recapping the U-20s and made mention that he had heard that maybe Cerillo had struggled a little bit uh, in uh, in a scrimmage prior to the tournament and maybe in training, and maybe that's why we didn't see him. But I do think one of the ongoing storylines to watch moving forward with uh, Dallas is that battle between those two guys, assuming Grezo doesn't move on. Obviously, if uh, if Carlos Grezo yeah. moves on, then suddenly that opens things up a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, it's always important to remember too that those that Cerillo is eighteen and Cervania is uh, twenty, I think, off the top of my head, uh, two years older. I'm pretty sure. Um, so you know, there. And, and we're talking about a national team, and I, I can buy the, the the rumor that Doyle had that Cerillo maybe was struggled in the scrimmage in camp because. Um, he had not been in any of Tap's camps before. So he's coming in on the very last camp there is before the thing, for the tournament. And it's not a system he's played in. He's not played in Tab's system. So it's like being thrown into a completely new coach, completely new system. Of course you're going to struggle. And so then you're nervous. You're a little bit younger than everybody else. You're unsure of yourself. You're unsure of the system. You start making a mistake or two. Now you're feeling worse about yourself. So I, I can buy that story. I mean, I, that's all conjecture on my part, of course. But uh, certainly we've seen... And Surreal here, when he's comfortable in Lucci's system, how much he shines. And I've watched him for two years in the academy now that I've watched him personally. Um, you know, the kid's spectacular. He's going to be great. You know, I, I don't have any qualms about the idea that two years down the line, you know, there's a point at which Grezzo is not here and Acosta is not here and Pax is not here. And those two guys might still be here and might be controlling this midfield when they're 23, 24, 25 years old. And that's pretty exciting long term. They both have some serious talent. They're enough different that if you use them as a paired six, you know, like they do, Cerillo as your stay-at-home guy and Cervania as your as your drift guy, you know, that's a pretty exciting future, um, depending on how things go, of course. So um, Cerillo for sure has outplayed both Cervania and Durkin, who was flat-out terrible in that tournament. But Cerillo's played, outplayed him in MLS, too. I don't see what people like about Durkin at all. Um well, I think Durkin's being a played a bit out of position too. I don't think he really is a is six he? by nature. No, I oh, think, I thought he was, but no, he, regardless think, of how DC uses him, he was <laughs> terrible. I mean, you know, they say his passing is supposed to be his good game, and I thought passing was his absolute weakest part of his game. I thought he was horrible. You know, yeah, was, he I, couldn't he couldn't pass to save his life. Yeah, 
I, I I'm not a hundred percent sure, but uh, uh, but I based on what I've read and heard from other people say he's not a six naturally; he's more of an eight. Uh, yeah, and maybe. maybe that's you know passing out of those two things are slightly different to each other. So um, I don't know. So now they've uh, gotten past Oklahoma City. Now they face yeah. New Mexico uh, United. Oh, good, another team with United in their name uh, mm-hmm. who show up and they're back at SMU at Westcott, and that game will be on the nineteenth at seven. Nineteenth, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I admit I don't know much about um, Minnesota. Good Lord. New Mexico United, other than uh, they have really great crowds. I mean, they, they they draw big time out there in New Mexico. And the reports are from the Open Cup game in Colorado. They brought a lot of people. So uh, Westcott might be absolutely packed if they travel well again to come here and, and play FC Dallas. That's a tough team. They're good yeah, based they, on their results. Yeah, they beat uh, Colorado. And that was in Colorado, right? Yeah, yeah. Wasn't that win in Colorado? Yeah, it was. The, and that was the thing is that they apparently brought a lot of fans, you know. And uh, they look, the championship is not that – USL championship is not that far beyond um, MLS. You know, MLS teams should win. But, you know, if you're talking about a first place in the USL West, New Mexico, you know, they've only lost two games all season. They have a, a more of a defensive-minded team. They're, they're only plus nine, but – um, that's a quality club. So it's, it's not an easy out. They battle, they play good defense. You know, they come on the road with a good fan base. So, um, Dallas, if Dallas professes to take the open cup seriously, so they're going to have to play some legit, a legit first 11, if they're going to want to win this game. Yeah. And they've got kick-ass kits too. New Mexico. They do. Uh, New Mexico does have good kits. I like the, the wolf, uh, whatever that art, uh, that art expo deal that they've got on their jerseys is a uh, wolf meow, meow wolf or whatever it is. That's a, those are cool looking kits. And the other big uh, news of the week is that it's finally Christmas for MLS fans as the salary guide has been released, albeit a oh, little yeah. bit later than uh, normal. And now we get to look at everybody's checkbook and see how much money they're making and then giggle over which teams are overspending or, or underspending. And I think we didn't, I don't think we saw any real surprises um, from Dallas's, um, point of view, I, are we, do we know, can you help me out? Is Grezo's guarant total guaranteed compensation that just, uh, breaks a million dollars? Um, is that the first time we've seen that from FC Dallas? Um, I don't, I'd have to go back and look, but I think Diaz was over a million, wasn't he? Uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm go, trying to go from memory, and I didn't go back and look at all the uh, numbers from last year. Yeah, um, I for some reason I thought Diaz was just under a million on guaranteed compensation. So is so Grezo's base is eight ninety, and his guaranteed is uh, just over a million, one point oh two five. I looked. Diaz last year was just under a million total compensation, but that definitely is a jump for Grezo. He was only at. Uh, Let's see. Last year was a base of uh, five ninety five, seven thirty total. So he, he, you know, he almost doubled his base. You know, in a, way, a lot of ways, not quite doubled. What was your big takeaway? Did anything that really caught your eye, or any uh, concerns or surpri- uh, pleasant surprises out of the salary release? Well, in terms of the salary structure, everybody fits in about right. Grezzo's the, the highest paid player. Surprised me a little. He obviously got a raise, and now you understand why he's still here when he's making that kind of money. I, I'd be tempted to stay too. Um, I still think he's got the potential to make a lot more than that. And I, it's the reason why I don't think he's going to be here much longer than a, another year. I thought he'd be gone already, but um, even the ones that we, we, we look at him, we go, Oh my gosh, the ones like 
uh, Coleman at 500 K and Cobra at 400 K with the 500 with the bonuses and Pablo 400 and, and Santi 500, you know, those numbers are all in line with what foreign signings get. When you go out and buy, or buy a foreign player. Now remember this numbers include how much, how much you pay to get them. Right. Includes well, things it, like purchase prices. It, I, you know, we had that exchange with Bobby Warshaw on Twitter, uh, that said sometimes that does get included, sometimes yeah. it doesn't. It's hard to know, but you know, some, know, they're usually right. they're amateurized over. It depends on how they use TAM or whatever. So I, these things are only loose guidelines. But you know, the, those foreign signings, though, they're in the right kind of position. Like you know, you sign a foreign number nine, he's going to get paid five hundred thousand dollars. The problem isn't the money; the problem is the performance. So nobody jumps out at me, and even the young guys that are underpaid for their value, they're still on their rookie homegrown contracts. So mm, um, nothing Cannon. shocking. And yeah, Reggie's underpaid. There's no question. A Paxton's underpaid. You know, I, the, uh, Ferreira's underpaid, but those guys are still on their initial three-year deal. Their next deal will be bigger. You know, that's how this things work. So um, nothing is shocking other than the fact that people don't play up to the value of their contracts. So, because uh, I know this is going to come up, how does a Dante Sealy end up with $108,000 uh, when Paxton, or let's use yeah. Ferreira, for example, is on $80,000? Well, Dante Sealy um, negotiated better, I guess. You know, he, he's in a position of power, but Dante was. Uh, he declined North Texas deals, I'm told. Um, he Because he's a TNT-eligible player, that means he has different sort of um, passport options to enable him to go other places at a younger age. You know, he'd been on trial to a couple of clubs in Europe who – because of his TNT route would be able to sign him before he's 18. So mm. uh, if I understand it correctly, this is just the, what I'm kind of hearing. So he had a stronger bargaining position um, in a protect your investment kind of way than Jesus Ferreira might have. Now you're only talking about a $10,000 difference. You know, it's not remarkably different yeah, but you're not on gonna the base see, number. Yeah, but you're not going to see Dante Seeley play for the senior team no, this year. No, no, but that was his initial deal. You know, and Ferreira's on his initial deal. You know, it's not um, – you know, it's not like Ferreira is doing a contract now. So the number he's on is not based on what you see on the field in 2019. It's based on what you saw three years ago, mm -hmm. 2015, 16, coming out of the academy when he was, a, you know, a kid. So, you know, Paxton's has come is higher because Paxton was a more acclaimed player at the time. Remember, he was winning a national championship. He was touted as all these things, you know, and Thomas Roberts the same way. Like you'll get Thomas Roberts's number. It's much higher because he's a attacking, exciting number 10 kind of player with huge promise. And there's the Byron interest that we've heard about, you know, and, and you compare that to your Tua Masse or your Tua Henne or Brandon Savania who all came out of college, you know, and are uh, attacking sort of interesting players. I mean, uh, Brandon was, wasn't he, um, SEC, uh, freshman of the year or something. And, and Tua Henne and Tua Masse were generation Adidas players. So, a lot of these numbers are falling in line, fall in line with where MLS puts guys in certain slots based on the kind of sign they are. Are they homegrown? Are they a GA? Are they going to the draft? Can anyone take them? Or is it a team specific thing? You know, if you're a homegrown, you have less bargaining position than you are if you're coming out of college and anyone in the league could technically sign you. So, um, you know, none of these things are vastly out of whack. And, and the next contracts for a bunch of these guys are going to be bigger. Um, than they are now, you know, so they're going to get their money in the long run. And otherwise, you know, I, I see nothing fishy in any of these things um, at all based on the value of, 
being foreign versus domestic, being a veteran player versus a kid out of homegrown, being in the draft, being um, a free agent, being a guy with World Cup experience, being a guy with international experience. You know, those things all have value and you get paid for them and that all fits. And and I think my biggest takeaway uh, from this is is that the salary structure and set aside the fact that you got two guys uh, gobbling up about twenty percent of your entire salary cap um, yeah. uh, between uh, Andresnik and Coleman. Uh, set that aside. But when you really start to look at all of the players they are getting production out of and that are homegrown players, and they're paying yeah. them collectively less than five hundred thousand dollars for four key starters, you really begin to. Understand understand really begin to understand and appreciate the business model that Dan yes. and Clark Hunt have instituted and the reason why they seem so focused and and determined to make this pay off in the long term for the club versus doing what so many other clubs are doing. Yeah. I mean, just look at at Jesus, Paxton, uh and who's the third one? Servania. You know, as he starts to emerge, Brian, Brian Reynolds in the last couple of weeks starting to emerge. Surreal, his emergence. And, you know, and these Reggie guys are Cannon. All getting, and Reggie Cannon. Yeah, it's, he's been around long enough that I can't even think of him as a kid anymore. You know, it's uh, look at the value they're getting for guys on contracts under $100,000. And you can see why they like this idea of this academy. Because let's say a guy is good enough, like Paxton, where he needs deserves down the line to get paid a whole lot more. Well, that's great. You can pay him a lot more, or you could sell him and get the next guy for $100,000. So, you know, depending on how ruthless you want to be about it, you either give these guys raises as their contracts expire, or you sell them and make some money. So it's like, and, and, you, and you begin to wonder, like, why in the world would we pay a million dollars for Den Nielsen when Jesus Ferreira is out playing him for 70 grand? You know what I mean? So it's like, it's, yeah. it's a no brainer to see why they're salivating all over this academy. Yes, and you absolutely can understand the business model uh, and why yeah. they want to pursue it. But at the end of the day, there is going to ultimately be a conversation that has to be had about ambition in terms of really winning championships. Because uh, while I uh, see and appreciate, this is like the best view through Dan and Clark's eyes I think we've ever had because it really begins, because this is the first year where you've really seen so many key inexpensive players producing minutes and playing well yeah. at the major league soccer level versus a Christian Coleman or an Andrezic who is making combined a million, you know, a $2 million and essentially producing nothing for the club on the field. Zero. And, and, and again, that number essentially gobbles up 20% of your salary cap. Yeah. And because this is a salary capped league, those numbers do become important, right? It's, yeah. it's different than just saying, well, that's a lot of money we spent. Well, it's a lot of money you spent and it counts against something. So yeah. uh, that's why I find this really eye-opening and fascinating. Uh, but at the end of the day, what all of a, what any fan ultimately is really going to care about is is this bringing home silverware, and that's yeah. got to convert. And I think that's going to have to start converting sooner than later because I don't think there's a lot of appetite to sit here and watch this team struggle to make the playoffs yeah. for more than a season or two. Well, you remember Dan and, and Clark have both said their dream is to win an MLS championship with all academy guys, with all the homegrown yeah, guys. Yeah, well, people in hell yeah, want the, ice water. 
Well, you know, what, what's, I know, I, well, you know, whether this club has an ambition or not is an interesting question. You know, look at who they sign and look at who their coaches are and all that kind of stuff. And I, it's a fair question. And I can't defend them and say that they're going to let their show an ambition. And one of the interesting things about, as you say, the cap is going to be important. And who is making value on the cap is like in, uh, down the line, these young kids are going to have to get pay raises. And that means they won't be on the protected part of the roster where they're cap free like they will be in the future. You know, they're going to have to move up into the top half of the roster and take on a big salary number. And so a big salary number is going to got to go. So even within the next year or two, those guys are all going to move up and guys are going to be moving out. So I, I think that you might start this summer and this next winter. Now that Lucci's had a year with this team, you're going to start to see Lucci rebuild this team even more so than he already has in terms of jettisoning out guys that he's not relying on and bringing in guys and paying them that he actually is relying on. And all you got to, all you got to do is look at who's playing and look at who's not playing. Look who's contributing and look who's not. And you can see the future coming like a train, you know, it's obvious what's happening. Right. Well, it was fascinating. Uh, I, I always love this part of the year. I know it makes the players nuts and they all get really nervous about, uh, and probably yeah. I can only imagine, uh, how this impacts the locker room when they see stuff like this. Um, yeah. And and family members and everything else. It's always uh, quite an eye opener that this uh, when at the twice the season Whoa. when this gets released. I mean, think about guys that already got raises like Jesse and still is at two seventeen, and he's looking at up going, man, look at all these guys. Or Baji, what a value Baji to me. Like when you look at his number two hundred k, that's a steal, man, for Baji. You know, I mean, like mm. some people rag on that guy, but look how much he's playing and how little he's getting. He didn't yeah. make half what Cobra and Coleman make. No, Baji's a good value. Uh, yes, he's a good value, but I don't think he's worth in two, more than $200,000. I think the the alarming number is the fact that guys that aren't playing are getting paid four yeah. and $500,000, not that Baji's not making more. I'm not right? saying Baji needs to make more. I'm saying that that's a really good value for a guy that actually ha- is playing and scoring some goals. Look at the value of Ryan Hollingshead at 175. I mean, that's crazy value for how much he plays. Yeah. You know, I think. Yeah. I mean, you know. Even even Jesse Gonzalez, like I don't want to pay a million dollars for a keeper, but you know he's such a good shot stopper. There are guys out there making a lot more money than him. I bet you know. No, oh, I, sure. I didn't bother yeah. to look, but that's pretty good value for a keeper that plays as well as he plays. A guy that's in the, the he's not a starter, but he's at least in the pool for the national team, right? I mean, that's, no, I think there's a lot of yeah. very admirable balance in the Dallas yeah. salary uh, lineup. They just have a couple of very clear misses. Yeah. Uh, is, at, yeah. at some of their biggest numbers, and I, you know, yeah. and I'm sure that's something that drives Dan and Clark nuts, and I'm, yeah. and, it, and it probably also will be reflective of the lack of that type of even bigger signing down the road. And again, at the end of the day, the reason why yeah. this is important is because Dallas, unlike other teams, are not a blow the cap out, we'll yes. take money out of our own pocket organization. Yep. Um, they are a uh, they are a bottom line deal, and uh, and and. The number, uh, it's a return on investment uh, argument, isn't it? Because uh, yeah, for kids on the, that are homegrowns that are costing $100,000 plus whatever it costs to them in the academy, that's all being covered by FC Dallas youth. All the parents that are paying for their kids to play for FC Dallas, that's all paying for that. But the yeah. guy that they go out and spend a lot of money on, like an Adresnik or a Coleman, that end up producing nothing, that's just lost money yeah. because they're not converting into tickets sales or or season ticket sales or jersey sales or anything like that well reinforce that too with chris richards who didn't play a single game and he sold for what a million and a half 
Yes, right? there's a huge upside. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. You, and again, the, the reason why we're talking about this is that if you really take the time to sit and look at these numbers and just yeah. think about Dallas as an organization, the vision of the Clark of the Hunt family becomes crystal clear, crystal on, clear yeah. on why they're operating this thing the way they are. Well, let's talk about the couple of bad contracts and the fact that they changed the language once again on the MLS rules. Like it used to be, it used to say that you could only buy out one DP a year. That one DP a year language is gone. It just says you can buy out anybody you want to. The trick is, so Dallas could, if they wish, buy out of their own pocket. Now, the trick is the Hunts have to pay for it. The club has to pay for it themselves out of their own pocket. They've done this before with somebody, haven't they? Who did they do uh, I, that? I with? can't remember. I, I took your word for it, but I can't remember it off the top of my head. But God, specifically, I swear they did it with somebody. Well, they've done an injury buyout before. I know they've done that, but um, in this case, yeah, in this case, you can buy out anybody you want to. Um, but if you do it during the season, you don't get cap relief. If you do it during the off season, you can have cap relief, right? So, um, Coleman's the information, the best information I have is that Coleman's deal is ending at the end of this year, at least in terms of its guarantee. There may be an option. I don't know. Um, and the information I have is that Andresic is guaranteed through next year. So if either one of those oh, guys, gosh. if you wanted to, a lot if of you want, well, you know, get to, foreign signing to your guarantee, that's pretty standard. Know. Um, you know, it's the failure of the scouting again, but no, that's not what I was talking about anyway, though. The, the point is, is that if you wait till the winter, you can buy out one or both of those guys and get them off your cap for next year, even if they were guaranteed for next year, based on the rules as I'm reading them. Now, I suppose there could be some tricky MLS garbage that we don't know about. They change the rules all the time. I don't tell anybody. But based on the rules that I read literally yesterday, you know, because I was conjecturing that they could do one of them during the season. But then as I read more, I was like, no, wait, they've changed this. You can't you can do whatever you want. They could do them both now, but it wouldn't clear if you did them both now, it wouldn't clear a million dollars off your cap. Right. So there's no reason to do it now unless you need the roster room, which they don't because they have two open roster spots. So you're going to have both those guys for the year. If Coleman can get back healthy, and as you jokingly said, watch him get back healthy and bang in 10 goals in 10 games, and they'll get re-signed. You know, and, and so as long as those guys are on the roster and as long as they're healthy, they're going to keep trying them and hoping that some of them progress or break out or something because you're paying them a million dollars combined. You might as well play them and see if something will happen. But this winter, I, I imagine they could get rid of one or both if they really wanted to, if they're willing to spend the money. All right. Well, next up, as we mentioned earlier, Dallas is in a weird little break. So this is going to be called the uh, U.S. Open Cup segment portion of the season as they now will uh, have to uh, play uh, New Mexico United at 7 p.m. back at SMU, um, uh, which was that next Wednesday? Is that right? Yeah, next Wednesday. Yeah, next Wednesday at SMU, and uh, we'll see what happens from there. Anything else you well, want to touch on, Buzz, before well, we go? Well, they actually managed to load their schedule up uh, crazily because they're playing Oscars Zolos like the first week oh, of July. Right, yeah. Um, they've got, if they advance past this one, they'll have around the 10th, they'll have another Open Cup game. They've got the Sevilla game on the 17th. So um, as our friend Daniel Robertson tweeted out, they've got 10 games in the next 33 days. So they've given themselves a heavy load. And the club puts priority on the Open Cup because it's the Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup. Don't forget that. So it's always going to be a big deal to them. So that's a that's a heavy load. And, and, and uh, you know, eventually you're going to get Acosta and Grezzo back, but that's not until sometime in July. So uh, I think – I had totally forgotten about the Zolos and the Sevilla games. Oh my God, what a whip. Yeah. 
Right. It's a whip. So, and I'm pretty sure that the, the gold cup ends on the, is it July 15th? Check me if I'm wrong. I mean, I don't think Honduras and, um, and I don't know remember Copa America is about the same time. So maybe Ecuador will do really well. Who knows? But so you'll get one or two of those guys back over the next month from now. Um, but there's going to be a heavy load on these young midfielders, you know, Cerrillo, Cervania, Paxton, Hayes, uh, Thomas, those guys are got to play a lot of minutes, man. And the window doesn't open to July 15th. So no reinforcements until almost so this sequence is over. Are you going to get any reinforcements? So you mean Ribery um, won't be here until late July? Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, not till July, July 15th. I'm pretty sure off, uh, again, off the top of my head, it's something like the 10th or the 15th, but Thomas Mueller, um, Thomas Mueller. Yeah. No, Lewandowski. no. <laughs> I don't, I, I was left, you know, I know Dan Hunt talked about Bayern Munich, but I was left with an impression Now, Lucci didn't say specifically, but I was left with an impression that he's not thinking, Byron retread. That's not the impression I got. He was talking about, uh, you know, vaguely talking about Scott scouting some guys in something somewhere like, uh, I think he mentioned Sweden once in an off conversation, you know, it's just a, so I, I don't anticipate, I, I think Dan was thinking about that more for the next off season, or maybe he's just dreaming and trying to sell it. Uh, cause it didn't seem like that was on the cards to talk to Lucci. The expression yeah. he had when I asked about that, he kind of had a weird expression on his face, you know, some body language. Maybe I'm not not so sure about that Byron signing coming in. Yeah, I think everybody should just uh, stand down and wait and see what actually yeah. happens. Yeah. Um, oh, real quickly, uh, last note before we go. Uh, any thoughts on the announcement that Austin ended up uh, hitting yeah. over thirty thousand deposits? Yeah. Now, they yeah. don't even have. Now, this is what I'm confused about. How can they say that number? They don't even have thirty thousand seats in the stadium. Well, um, keep in mind that some people buy partial tickets packages, so you might have bought five games or something. Uh, you know, they count that as a season ticket. That's so Austin so, millennial sounding. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's reinforcement <laughs> a uh, number one of the 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 value that the new MLS teams or even new USL teams like look at New Mexico expansion team, right? They're packing their places out. These new teams that are coming into markets are taking advantage of the growth and the hype of soccer. So you're seeing. New MLS teams, Cincinnati, you know, they're, they're doing gangbusters. Austin, apparently, because I had questions about that market, looks pretty good. You know, the, 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 there's a disadvantage at this point to being an old MLS team that no one cares about. You know, Columbus is doing terrible in attendance. Chicago's doing terrible in attendance. FC Dallas is doing terrible in attendance. So, you know. Colorado. Colorado, yeah, you know. Now, New granted, England. you could New England. You could point at all those teams too as poor execution in the front office. There's no question. But look at what LAFC is doing compared to the Galaxy. That even I'll give LAFC, LAFC a lot of hype credit. You know, with the things they got going on. You know, uh, you got to take advantage of the opportunities you're given. And some of these new groups are, and some of the old groups are not, hmm. for sure. But there's certainly a MLS. What are we on? 5.0 has got some hype <laughs> factor to it, and some people are doing some crazy stuff with it, and you know, if you're talking about the future of the game and about the excitement of the game beyond just MLS, I love what's happening with soccer in America. So that that part of it's awesome. You know, it'll be if they're packing that place out, it'll make Texas this, as a state look good because Houston's attendance stinks too. So you know, hey, more power to them. Good luck. Hope they do well. Attendance-wise, not on the field. Yeah, it just feels so far off in the future. Uh, it'll be fascinating yeah. to see what ultimately plays out uh, between now and the time they actually build the stadium and kick off at that joint. All right. Yeah, we get Nashville next year first. That's true. Um, yeah. All right. Well, excellent. Yeah. Well, Buzz, thank you for that uh, solid hour of FC Dallas soccer talking. Yeah, good times, Peter. 
All right. Well, thank you, uh, good FC Dallas fan. We will talk to you next week on another edition of Third Degree, the podcast.